Well, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, it's a, I think, an appropriate text for the sobriety that we're experiencing in our culture. This is a text that's going to be looking at the life of John the Baptist and how he's at the end of his life. He may or may not have known that at this point of him reminiscing, but he'd been a year in prison um, under Herod Antipas, and that's the context of Matthew 11. This is a, a person who's needing confirmation, what we talked about last week of who he is, what his mission is, what it's meant. Jesus is real. Jesus is alive. It's all worth it. It all matters. That's what uh, John is working through out loud in these first uh, you know, verses, maybe the first 11 or 12 or so verses, maybe 15 verses worth. And it's dealing with the issue of uh, isolation. He's in a very, really dark desert dungeon-like beneath the ground prison, uh, some five miles by 15 miles, uh, um, kind of parallel to the northern part of the Dead Sea. If you have your Bible map in your mind or on your phone or in your Bible, that's where he is in this text. He's in a desert, desperate, <clears throat> hot condition. He had preached for 18 months in open-air preaching, living in the wilderness and the wild, having massive revival, preaching judgment, saying this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He baptizes Christ. Heaven opens up. The miraculous uh, voice of God is affirming his Son in whom he's um, well-pleased. The Spirit of God is descending upon Jesus as in the form of a dove. And John is just preaching and baptizing. And then the ministries of Christ, his preaching and John are on either side of uh, the Jordan. And so there's a bit of a separation in ministry. And then John, by preaching against Herod Antipas and his adulterous sin, lands him in prison to where he is soul-searching and doing a lot of reminiscing out loud for us in this text. And... This is something that began to cause me to connect then with now in terms of what's happening in the, uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine, which is massive, quickly becoming a world dynamic in terms of coalitions and sanctions and um, who's going to ally with whom and what is going to take place next is on the minds and hearts of many of us as we think about these things. We've got a lot of our American troops and soldiers that are overseas and based in strategic places uh, ready to help or assist in one way or another. There are people that have died. There are videos that you probably have watched, um, little, little you know, moments where people capture things with tanks um, you know, rolling and, and people standing in the way. And there was one scene I saw that I think was in Irpin. I'm sorry, in um, Kiev. Irpin is a kind of a, a suburb of Kiev. In the city of Kiev, there was a, a missile that, that shot and um, exploded at the end of a block. And what was most disconcerting to me, and you probably have seen this as well, just is how people just walk kind of in disillusioned um, a dissolution zombie-like state, just wondering what's happening, getting a grasp on reality. Is this really happening? People walking around being at war. You know, we are now at war is what people are thinking. What's amazing is to think in terms of the church, though. We have missionaries that we support 
Alex and um, Ekaterina Prokopenko, who are, um, grew up in Samara, Russia, which is just a, a, you know, a country, as, as Alex has explained to me, a beautiful area, kind of a, just an open field country sort of area that he grew up in and growing up in the woods there in the fields and enjoying his childhood. And he's a pastor there. Um, his wife and family have several kids. We support them. He's the lead of the TMAI, the Master's Academy International, so he's training expositors there. But you have missionaries on one side of uh, the, you know, the battle, and then you have other missionaries that are part of the Master's Academy International that are part of Ukraine and you know, under fire. And so how is everybody in the body of Christ to stay on mission, to stay focused on Christ, to keep doing what they're doing, and to you know, keep good um, relations and fellowship between each other in the body of Christ? And that's an important thing to, to think through and pray for. Uh, there was a missionary faculty member from the TMAI that's in Ukraine. It was an urgent um, prayer request um, that they were remaining in country to help during Ukraine's greatest time of need. And one of them said, we have some contingency plans. I um, think it's the wise thing to do. Buy non-perishable food, um, a propane stove, pack a bomb shelter backpack. As Christians, we're not here to survive, they said. We're here to love the Lord with all our hearts and joyously give everything we've got toward the fame of the Almighty. Um, you know, whether you live or die, um, Paul said, I die daily. We're supposed to be strategic about all those things, um, but we're supposed to stay focused on the mission no matter what. Um, we pray for the Bondars. Um, we, we love them, and um, we know that Oleg and Amanda are um, unique and part of our church. Oleg and Amanda met in Ukraine, and uh, Amanda had gone over there as a missionary and um, as she was winning people to Christ, she was won to a marriage with Oleg and, and then came back here. And she serves as our children's director. Oleg's in our seminary, but his parents are over in Ukraine. And I was talking to him before the service. I mean, they, they go into a cellar when bombs are coming and they, you know, have fortified that cellar as a bomb shelter and his siblings there and, you know, friends and family. So we just, we pray especially for them as well as you think that through. I've been to um, a seminary there in, uh, it's called Irpin. It's right outside of Kiev. I stayed in Kiev and um, taught there eschatology and ecclesiology to the, to basically what became like a master's academy there. That's a seminary there. And uh, loved the people, loved the students, and was driven there through the winding, you know, sort of former um, communism layout streets and they're checking your passport and your ID all the time, and it's very formal. But, um, you know, the love of the Lord is there with just people that love Christ. And um, we, just, we just need to be praying for the complexities of the church there. I, I think I saw a report that the international airport where you fly into Kiev was bombed yesterday. And that was the airport I flew into, you know. So just this is real. And it, it, I think is a, is, it is an appropriate lead-in to our text because in times of desperation, your faith can genuinely be tested. And the test of John the Baptist is one where he's a fiery, aggressive preacher who then is shifted into an absolute extreme opposite life from being an open-air preacher to being completely isolated dramatically. And that isolation wore on him for a year's time where he's in dark, 
dungeon, hot, desert existence, isolated from everyone, isolated from Jesus, isolated from seeing people converted. And he begins to muse about his life. He begins to reminisce about his life and to question everything and ultimately to question Jesus Christ because he's in prison. He's in a wartime environment where he's questioning things. The Christian life is one of a great investment and one of the greatest ways that you can prepare yourself to go into a difficult Christian circumstance is to consider the cost up front and to, to kind of maintenance your expectation and go in strong and say, it's going to be hard. Matthew 10 is all talking about the tough mission that lies ahead. And this is an example of one who was put on that tough mission and how he was wrestling through it. Listen as I read a few verses just to get us started. Matthew 11 Verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? You know, one of the amazing realities of John the Baptist asking a question like this is to say, if John the Baptist can ask a question like this, if John the Baptist can get this low, then any of us can. We're all susceptible to this. An unbeliever denies the faith. A believer is one who doubts the faith. Remember that. This is a common sin in digression that is experienced in the heart of believers. Unbelievers deny the faith. Believers, though, will be susceptible to doubting the faith. How do you revive yourself from the doubts? That's what Jesus is going to do with John. We're going to see John revived through the ministry of Jesus that comes back to him. And John is to be elevated in the sense that he was humble, he was fiery, he was esteeming Christ. He is the last Old Testament prophet. Think about it. He's the forerunner of Christ. All the prophets before him, Elijah included as the marked forerunner of John. John is taking over the mantle from what Elijah did. Elijah who did battle with uh, the false teachers on you know, of Baal on Mount Carmel and fought them and, and just took them on. John the Baptist is in that same wake and that same fire uh, as a preacher. But at the same time, he's a person just like us. James five seventeen said Elijah was with a nature like ours, but he prayed fervently that it wouldn't rain three and a half years and it did not rain on the earth. Well, John, though he was set apart, took the Nazarite vow. He's the last Old Testament prophet. He's just like you and me. And this text tells us as much. It's, it's not okay to stay doubting, but it's something important to understand that Christians doubt. Christians need to be revived. They need to be recentered. They need to come out of their dungeon, out of your isolation. Isolation in Alaska can be a bad thing physically if you're too indoors, if you're too secluded away from people, if you don't get out in the sunlight in the afternoon or evening, if you don't see a sunset, you can fall prey to depression. A far worse danger for you spiritually is to isolate yourself away from the body of Christ. 
to isolate yourself and stay away from Jesus or stay away from people who love Jesus. And that's a sin that people fall prey to where you need to be revived from that, to be brought out of that. How did John end up in prison? Well, he was, uh, he fell for Herodias and Herodias uh, through her daughter had ordered um, John the Baptist's head to be cut off. And we're going to learn all about this in Matthew 14. A few chapters later, this is all brought to bear, and all the depth and detail of what John was going through is, is on display. This, in Matthew 11, is a retrospect, retrospective uh, kind of story through the eyes of John the Baptist as he reminisces, and he's at the end of his life in this crisis And the outline will reflect that. In Matthew 14, it's more through the eyes and perspective of Herod, who has a guilty conscience and doesn't know what to do with John. He's someone who loved John's preaching. Um, Herod was a tetrarch. He was one of the Roman um, sort of ambassadors. He wasn't of Roman descent, but Antipas was a... Uh, was a person who nevertheless took on a Roman um, mantle and was an official in Galilee. And he's one of the Tetrarchs, one of the Herods. And he fell in love with uh, his brother Philip's wife and, um, and committed an adulterous affair. He divorced his wife and, and put her away. I think he had her killed and then, and then went for Herodias. And, and the guilt was just eating him up. And we're going to talk all about that. But John the Baptist is who we're looking at this morning. Verse 11 of chapter 11. Look at this. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You know, the expectation in one sense is none of us can be like John the Baptist. And then Jesus immediately flips it in verse 11 and says, but through humility, we're all expected to be like John the Baptist. We're just all expected to be humble. We're all expected to come to the end of ourselves and be humble. That makes us great in the kingdom of God. John is doubting Jesus. He's doubting his calling. Matthew's agenda in the macro here as the writer of this gospel is to expose the issue of doubt through the life of John. And he talks about doubting a lot through the ministry of Jesus in this gospel You know the phrase that Jesus uses, oh, you of little faith. He says that to his disciples. How long will you doubt? He says that as well when they try to exercise a demon and they're unable to do it. The disciples in the boat, do you remember that? They're doubting Jesus. They're doubting that Jesus is God who is in the boat with them. Jesus walks on water. There's doubts that move in their hearts and Jesus indicts them. Jesus says that if you have faith, you can move mountains, but if you doubt... You can't. Uh, he says in Luke chapter 12, 28, how much will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. People doubt. Those at the Great Commission at Matthew 28, some doubted when Jesus was showing himself raised from dead, from the death, um, from the dead. Some heard Jesus was alive at, at the resurrection, at the um, at the empty tomb, but they would not believe it. And I've got these texts listed. You can find them in the notes online, but Matthew 8, 26, Matthew 14, 31, Matthew 21, 21, Matthew 28, 17. All of those are accounts in Matthew where Jesus is addressing doubt. Jesus, um, he met Peter on Simon the Tanner's roof in Joppa and lowered the the sheet vision of unclean animals and said, kill and eat, kill and eat, kill and eat. And 
Peter is seen as inwardly perplexed, Acts 10, 19, and 20. He was pondering the vision, questioning things. Is this even real? What's happening? Jesus warns against um, doubting over and over again. In the New Testament, James goes on and picks this up, and he says to not be double-minded. A person tossed to and fro like on the waves of the sea, tossed by the wind. People who are like children who are tossed by every wind of doctrine, tossed to and fro by the waves. This is being double-minded. This is being two-faced in in your thinking. It will always make you unstable. Well, the point that Jesus is going to make in this text, the way that, that John the Baptist is going to be revived is very important for you to pay attention to in your own heart, in your own life. Because it's through the path of having your faith strengthened. How does Jesus strengthen John's faith? How does Jesus bring John from the end of his life, just before execution, a year in jail? How is he going to revive this man's faith? What's he going to do to help him out of his doubts? Remember the father who had the son who was who was throwing himself into the fire and the water. He was demon-possessed, and he went to Jesus, and he said, if you could do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if I can do anything? And immediately in Mark 9, 24, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. How do we help Our unbelief, well, here's the outline. It's reminiscing four stages of John's life. Reminiscing through four stages of John's life. It's turning doubt back into faith. The first stage that John is reminiscing is when he's landed in prison for preaching the truth. He's landed in prison for preaching the truth. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, that's all of what we just went through for a couple months in chapter 10. At the end of that instruction, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So Jesus is practicing what he's preached. He said, go, go to the lost sheep of Israel, go out and preach, put your life on the line. And he's going out and doing it. And he's teaching and preaching. The emphasis here is teaching and preaching, didascale. The issue is the word of God going out. I think a lot of times we think, well, back in the day when Jesus was displaying all the miracle ministry, that's when things were really powerful. But even then you'll see Jesus preaching truth. He's a herald of the gospel for life change on the inside. That's what John needed more than a display on the outside. He needed something to happen on the inside. The contrast here is Jesus is there on the outside preaching. He's up and running and John is down and struggling. He's out in the open air and and John is inside constrained in isolation. This contrast is sort of on the face of things. We see it. We can see why John would be discouraged. Turn back in your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 3. Remember what John's ministry was like. It was, it was very, very fiery. Look at verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You know what John is doing there? He's 
predicting what Jesus is going to do in the hearts of people. I baptized you on the outside, but he's going to baptize you on the inside. I think at this point, though, John's confidence in the Lord's mission and ministry was waning because he's saying, how did I end up here? Jesus is out there. He's preaching. And I'm preaching that there's unquenchable fire judgment coming. And I don't see that happening. I don't see that happening in my life where I'm being vindicated for what I did. I put myself out there and now I'm in here. What is going on? He's kind of having a confused moment with the turn of events. The battle on the outside is really John's battle on the inside. Remember, the 12 apostles are also preaching throughout Galilee. Matthew 10, 5, and 6 shows us that. They're out, up and running, and John is inside. William Barclay said this about John. He said, John was a child of the desert. He'd lived a life in wide open spaces and with clean wind and um, a spacious vault of the sky for his roof. He had never been confined um, before, but now was confined within four narrow walls, an underground dungeon. A man like John had probably never lived in a house. He must have been in agony. And he compares John's experience to a man who was in a Carlisle castle, a little cell. He said once long ago, they had put a border chieftain in the cell and he had left, um, lived there for years. And then left there for years, and that cell was had one little window, which is placed too high for a man to look out of when he's standing on the floor. On the ledge of the window, in the stone, there are two depressions worn away. They wear the marks of the hands of the border chieftain, the places where day after day he had lifted himself up by placing his hands on the ledge. They might look on the green dales across which he would never ride again. Barclay says, John must have been like that. There's nothing to wonder at and still less to criticize. In fact, the questions began to form themselves in John's mind. You know what John's experiencing? Remember what I preached on last week? He has buyer's remorse. He's like, what happened? What did I get myself into? I know none of you have ever struggled with any questions like that in your faith. I say that facetiously because... Again, believers sin in this way. Believers struggle in this way. This is a common temptation. There's no temptation that's overtaken you that isn't common to man. But with the temptation, he provides a way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is a common struggle. Unbelievers are deniers. Believers are doubters. But you can't stay in doubt. You have to be buoyed up again in faith and find out how to do it by the ministry of Christ. This is all a situation that has come because John has been faithful to preach. And John preached, it's just a little sidebar here, he preached against the sin of Herod Antipas. Again, calling him out as an adulterer. Why did he do that? Did he do that to reform Rome? A lot of times there's a real temptation, especially with our political world and agendas and liberalism, to take up the fight of trying to make America what we thought America was before and now it's not. And we're trying to reform politics and reform governors or government. That wasn't John's agenda at all. That's never the church's agenda. As John MacArthur puts it, we're in a ship and it's going down. It's going down. That's what's promised to us. Um, The world is going to be consumed with fire this time. It was consumed with water before. Our Our goal and mission is to preach Christ for lost sinners to be saved from hell. That's your goal. 
That's your mission. Now, does that mean you just ignore politics? No. John preached against, publicly preached against the sin of Herod. And he certainly wanted Herod to repent of his sin. And he wants people to repent of adultery. That was his target aim. But he wasn't trying to reform Rome. He wasn't trying to, um, you know, recreate Galilee for a better way of life and society to fight off the liberalism of the world. That wasn't his goal. The gospel does that, though. We, we spread salt and light, and it does tame things back. It is a message of hope. It, it does work in the consciences of people. But oftentimes, um, the, you don't have to go and find the fight with politics. All you got to do is preach the gospel. And don't worry, the, po- the politicians will come after you. <laughs> you don't have to go to them. They'll come to you. Just preach Christ. Just be faithful. Just be open air about your faith, and the persecution will come. You don't need to find it. The prophets always preach judgment. Christ preached judgment. Paul preached judgment. And the New Testament church preaches judgment, but also with grace. With grace. Back to John. Remember, what happened to him was he preached against Antipas. Antipas had gone to Rome. He was the governor of Galilee. He took a liking to Herodias, the brother, his wife, um, the wife who was uh, the wife of Herod's brother, Philip. Herod seduced Herodias and returning to Galilee, Herod divorced his wife. He married Herodias. John the Baptist heard of it, confronted Herod's sin, and was thrown into prison. He wasn't immediately executed because he was very popular by the people. The people loved John. John had given a way out from under Pharisaical religion. There's always religious oppression that's around. Always, I was thinking about the Alaska native villages. I'm praying for them. I'm praying that we can reach them with missionaries, with preachers. I want have a vision over the next 20 years to populate the pulpits of the house churches and all of the villages in Alaska. We've got 23 that um, hear these sermons on the radio. We have Alaska missions, short-term missions that go from the school where people have gone there. But usually in a village, it's about you know a couple hundred people that are in little gravel strip, strip runway um, areas, and you've got a um, you know Russian Orthodox church. Then that represents false religion, false religion. Um, do's and don'ts, externalism, you know, confusing the gospel. And you'll have someone who's a leader there who's trying to control the agendas of the village. Then you have government, a government witness through the money that comes to create a school there and, and populate things with some ingenuity. And then, and then you'll have, um, you know, village false worship, um, animism and worshiping nature and, and satanic things. And what's the answer to all three situations where you have religion, government, and Satanism? What's the answer? Sunday school class? I mean, it's the gospel. The gospel. Preaching the gospel. That's what does it. Now, will that get people in trouble? Yeah, but we're not trying to get in trouble. We're trying to win people to Christ. All we need is a faithful preacher of the word of God in that house church. I've been to one of those before. I went to a village called Kakanak, and it was like 15 um, people there smiling with the word of God, you know, huddled together around the word of God and understanding truth. There's nothing more authentic than church ministry like that. It's preaching. It's preaching truth. The crowds loved John because he was rescuing the people out from under religion, out from under Phariseeism. He was in prison now in an old fort, fort called Malcharis. It's located again Five by 15 miles north of, of the end of the Dead Sea. 
He was, he was in sweltering heat. He was wavering. He was not in a good space. And he needed to persevere in his faith during this time. Jesus said there was no one greater than John. Think about this. That he is the Elijah who, has to, who is to come. He's the one who's come as the last Old Testament prophet. And he is wrecked on the inside. And he is stuck in isolation. So what does he do? We don't want to beat John up too much here. You know what he does? He doesn't stay spiraling in doubt. He actually sends two disciples out to go to Jesus and say, I don't know. Help me out. Right? I mean, the Bible says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. What does that look like? That looks like in your heart, going to the feet of Jesus, crawling on the ground to him saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me make up the difference by your grace where I am falling short because I don't have the faith to really trust you right now with my life, my finances, my health, my future. I need you, Jesus. That's what John the Baptist is doing. He's doubting, but there's, there's a, a little gasp of faith here where he sends his disciples. He's not doing it, I don't think, with vitriol or contempt. He's saying, are you, verse 3, the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's what he does first. He, he asked the question because he was in prison. He landed in prison. And then here's the second area of reminiscing. It's verses 4 through 6 where Jesus will answer him. He's sending the word of his heart to Jesus, and Jesus meets him right where he is. Instead of Jesus turning away from John or giving up on John, he meets John right where he is. That's what you need to do as well if you're struggling. Point two, he's crying out for help when hope was lost. Crying out for help when hope was lost. What a question, by the way, looking back at verse three. Are you the one who is to come? It's a bold question. It's boldness, or should we look for another? Boldness out of desperation, it's a risky question. But Jesus meets him where he is. John's in solitary confinement. He's looking. And he's hearing about the miracles of Jesus. I think that's important to understand. Jesus grew up um, in the same proximity with John. I don't know if they were cousins as friends. They were cousins. You have Mary and Elizabeth, um, six months apart in pregnancy. Remember, um, John leapt in the womb when he was in the presence of Mary because Mary was going to bear the, um, the son of God. And it, it's a foreshadowing of the calling that John the Baptist was set apart. When you're set apart from the womb, it's, uh, Galatians 1 talks about Paul being set apart from the womb as well to do mission and ministry. I, the first job I ever thought of doing, I think I was seven years old. I'd never thought about this until coming up here. But the first thing I ever saw myself doing was preaching. It's just interesting. I, I, who knows? But there's a calling on a person's life to be set apart, and John the Baptist was that, and he grew up near Jesus, I'm sure, and knew of him. Jesus didn't perform his miracle ministry that we know of before he was 30 and launched in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, though fully divine and fully God, all the way up to that point, he was learning and growing wisdom and knowledge and favor with God and favor with man. Hebrews says he learned obedience, though he was perfect in all of his obedience, he was still learning fully human 
And then he began to exercise his powers in ministry. But again, apart from the baptism scene where John the Baptist heard from heard the affirmation from heaven on Jesus and the spirit descending as a dove, that's powerful enough. And, Jesus, and John knew who Jesus was as the Lamb of God and knew that he would baptize people by a heart conversion by the Holy Spirit. Apart from that, their ministries were divided in proximity. John was still baptizing people under what he knew as the last Old Testament prophet, a forerunner of the Messiah. And Jesus was ministering under his teaching that was foreshadowing the new covenant teaching of conversion and the Holy Spirit and manifesting heaven on earth, miracles that were taking place all around. Um, never before had people in the history of the Bible received sight being blind. That was a miracle that had never been recorded in the Old Testament. The lame were walking, lepers were cleansed, the deaf were hearing, the dead were raised. All these miracles that were predicted by Old Testament scripture were happening in the life of Jesus and his ministry. But John the Baptist on the other side of of the Jordan was ministering and he had disciples of John, those who were under his teaching and ministry. So John is wondering and investigating in his own heart if this is valid, if this is true. If you look at Acts chapter 19, you'll remember there were disciples of John. This is after Jesus had died, was buried, rose again, but they didn't hear anything about it. They didn't really know anything about the Holy Spirit. It says that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, Acts 19. There he found some disciples and said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, the Holy Spirit comes in a demonstrative way. They speak in tongues. What I'm telling you is under the ministry of John, there was a baptism of repentance. Anyone who genuinely repented, repented by the Holy Spirit. But the demonstrative power of God was put on display, symbolizing that the Holy Spirit was coming in a unique and powerful way to establish the New Testament church. And that's what's going on. But you just have, you have some catch-up that, that people need to, to, to have happen in their lives. The disciples of John. And John himself is needing to come clear on the fact that the miracle ministry of Jesus was validating that Jesus was the Messiah. So how does Jesus tie this all together? He could have done this. He could have said, okay, I think there were two disciples that came and, and they said, look, you know, we're speaking for John and John's doubting. He's at the end of his um, prison term. He's up for execution. He's going to have his head cut off. And he's wondering if you're the real deal. Are you the Messiah or is there someone else to look for? That's where he is. What Jesus could have done is in, imbued them with power, sent them back, and then they could have performed miracles in front of John and validated through external experiences and miracles that Jesus is Messiah. He doesn't do that. What Jesus does is he reaches John and catches, catch this now. He turns the flame up of John's weakened faith with the word of God, the word of God. It's like, it always comes back to that, but you have to come back to the truth. And that's what Jesus does 
to bolster John's faith. This is what he says. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blesses the one who is not offended by me. What, what's he doing here? He's basically saying, look, this is what you need to tell John. Tell John that everything that's happening out here is perfectly synchronized with Isaiah chapter 61. It's all happening. In Luke 4, Jesus, um, to sort of uh, launch his ministry, he went into the temple in Nazareth, Nazareth, where he was brought up. And it says, as his custom, he went to the synagogue on Sabbath day, stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So providentially, the scroll reading for that day was Isaiah 61. It goes right into the hands of the Messiah, and the Messiah, as a prologue for his ministry, reads about what he's about to do. This is the very thing that he's reflecting back to John the Baptist to say, this is what I read that I was going to do, and this is exactly what's happening. And these disciples are telling you that everything Isaiah predicted about me hundreds of years before is happening now, and that's where your confidence is. And, and from the scroll, Luke 4:17 of the prophet Isaiah was given him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is exactly what Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 says as well. The spirit of the Lord upon me. The Lord's anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. To bind up the broken heart. To, hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Isaiah 29, 18. On that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book, of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. People will see. Listen to this. Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. What all this is about is these physical manifestations of heaven on earth are reflecting the, the spiritual work that Jesus is doing in the hearts of believers. You were blind, but now you're going to see. You were deaf, but now you're going to hear. You were dead, but now you're brought to life. You were a leper, and now you're cleansed. These are amazing manifestations externally that prove Jesus is real and validates him, but it proves his ministry to the heart of a believer as well. And John needs to be refreshed by that. You say, how do we get refreshed by, like that here? I mean, we're a lot like John the Baptist. We're in the, you know, the new covenant age, the church age, the physical manifestations of miracle ministries that happened in the book of Acts and in the gospels. They're not as prevalent today. We don't see those things today. I don't want to limit God. But at the same time, the tone and tenor of the New Testament proves out that when the apostles died off, their mission and ministry of showing these manifestations ceased. And so in this New Testament age, beyond 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we begin to see in the epistles um, a, a faith ministry where we see the dynamics of what the miracles represented in the hearts and the lives of people. When we hear people testify in the waters of baptism, I was blind, but now I see. My marriage was going down, now it's put together. My ears were stuffed up and I was deaf and I couldn't hear the gospel as truth, but now I do. I was dead. I was spiraling and then I was brought to life. When we see those things, those are the manifestations of the power of God that we can embrace by faith and go, it all is real. 
You isolate from church. You sit in your own prison cell of your own self-pity. I've never done it. No, I'm kidding. I'm serious. When you spiral and, and avoid church, you'll get to where John the Baptist got to quickly. If you forsake the assembling together, as some get in the habit of doing, Hebrews 24 and 25, if you stop spurring each other on to love and good deeds just for a little while, you'll atrophy. It's just like working out. I don't mean to give you the workout speech, but if you stop working out, your body will just start to shut down. If you keep working out, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll stay more active. It's the same thing with fellowship. You have to put yourself around people. Outs, you have to come out of the dungeon if possible and get fellowship with the Lord and see the miracle ministry of Jesus through the eyes of faith and say, it's all real and I behold it in scripture and I see it lived out in front of me. That's where the flame gets turned back up in your life. Passive isolation will atrophy your own spiritual heart. You can set your watch by it. All of this is observable though. And it comes through hearing the word of God. Look at verse five again at the end. And the poor have good news preached to them. It's preaching. It's preaching that's the catalyst for seeing. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. I have to say this. Um, Jesus sort of just left John in jail. <laughs> he didn't go get him out of jail. He sent back messengers to bolster his faith by making the allusion to Isaiah 61 and the other Isaiah passages and saying, remember the Old Testament scripture and, and synchronize that with what you're hearing about that's happening out here. And Jesus knew that would be enough. It's amazing because he commends John later on. We're going to get to that next week. But, but Jesus is going to pick up the, uh, the reminiscence of John. John, the first two points are John reminiscing, um, how'd I get here? And then I reached out to the Lord. And then Jesus will turn the attention of the narrative in verse 7 to the crowds. And he'll keep talking about John and the episodes of his life and where he comes from. So this is a retrospective that starts with John and then goes to Jesus. It's amazing the way he does it. But Jesus is doing all this. He's like, okay, I've sent those guys back. Now I'm going to the crowds and you're going to learn a lesson by what just happened out loud. John's doubting is going to stop because he's humble. Uh, because, look at, look at the text again. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's saying John's not going to be offended by me. The word offense is scandalon. It means to stumble over me. Um, one of two things happen when you hear the word of God. You harden or soften. When you see a hurdle in front of you and you're running full speed, you either jump over it or you boop. You ever trip and fall and it's like you're shattered like glass into a million pieces? People either, you know, they, they take the leap of faith and say, I believe, or you stumble and you fall and you go, I don't believe. He knew John was going to believe, keep believing and be stronger for what he heard. He knew it. People that are looking for externals will fail. People who are hardened to the word of God will fail in their faith. John Wimber, who started the hyper-charismatic movement in what he called um, power evangelism. He came into the church in California, and he looked around, and it looked too boring for him. And so he said, where's the stuff? Where's the stuff? I need to see things. That makes me think of what Jesus condemned in Matthew 12 and 16. Uh, Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 
people in the Jesus culture, Bill Johnson, Bethel Redding movement that are seeking signs are not seeking Jesus. Externalism is not faith. It's not faith. The only sign that was given them in those days was the sign of Jonah. In other words, Jesus is going, if you want a sign, if you want to genuinely believe and be strengthened to believe I'm Messiah and get the gospel, read Jonah. That's your sign. Here's Jonah. Do a Bible study about him going into the belly of a fish and coming out. And it's a picture of resurrection. That's your sign. And that's an extraordinary sign. But you have to embrace that sign by faith. The same thing John the Baptist had to do. Embrace these signs. You're in. It's veiled to you because you're in a prison. Embrace that because that's what Isaiah said was going to happen. That's what we get as believers. You say, Man, if I could just hear the voice of God, I'd be such a fiery Christian. If I could just hear, you know, some amazing, if I could just see something, that would be awesome. And then I'd really be great. It doesn't work that way. The strongest people in faith are the people who believe the word of God by the Holy Spirit, and it's alive to them, and then they preach. Paul said, I believe, therefore I preached. Um, how's the sign going to help you when you start getting beaten for the faith? It's not going to be enough. The signs are not a magic show to keep us inspired externally. Uh, The witness of the Holy Spirit by the word of God is all we need. And I say this by in caution to representing the Holy Spirit's work because it's so powerful. But, you know, the analogy of the Old Testament to the New Testament to what we have in the Holy Spirit is is maybe likened to dial up to (laughs) Wi-Fi. Do you remember dial up? Who had dial up? You know, with the haunting, squawking sounds of uh, trying to get your... I had a black and white TV with my Commodore 64 hooked up to it with dial-up, right? That was my version of what my kids are like now, my young kids that are techies doing stuff. And I had my own, you know, sort of page where I was trying to search the internet and talk to people. Had pictures with X's and O's to make graphics. It was, it was weird, You know, but that's like the old covenant where the Holy Spirit was, you know, in the Shekinah. He was he was the pillar of fire um, by night, the cloud by day. The the Holy Spirit moved upon judges, upon prophets, upon kings in powerful ways. The Holy Spirit hovered over the creation before it was spoken into existence. The Holy Spirit is real through the Old Testament and powerful and would come upon Samson and leave. David prayed, take not your Holy Spirit from me as he led as a king. We understand the Holy Spirit was part of all of people for all times being born again. John 3 says as much about Nicodemus and his need pre-cross. All of that is Old Testament truth of the Holy Spirit. But in the New Testament, Jesus left and sent the Holy Spirit to us in a demonstratively powerful way. What does that mean? Is that in signs and wonders and experiences? No, it's in the presence of the living Lord that lives inside you every day of your life. How do you turn the flame of that up in your life? You go to the word of God and say, who am I? Why am I here? What is my mission? And how do I proceed? We come to the word of God as a living, active, two-edged sword where the spirit convicts us of sin and digs us out of our buyer's remorse. That's where we're headed even next week. Next week, we'll pick up with point three, where John is viewed through the lips and teaching of Jesus as someone who sacrificed every comfort from the start of his ministry, verses seven through eight. It's a shift where, where Jesus begins to build up John. I've sent the word of God back through these disciples to him. He'll be fine. Let me tell you a story about John. We'll pick that up next week.